Very good morning to you. It's Money Talk on uh, Radio 3 and we welcome our guests uh, to the programme and uh, say good morning to Andrew Ferris, who is CEO of Ecognosis Advisory. Uh, Good morning, Andrew. Good morning. Nice to have you on the show and also say uh, good morning to uh, Mark Franklin, Managing Director and Senior Portfolio Manager of Multi-Asset Solutions, Manulife Investment Management. Uh, Good morning, Mark. Morning, James. Uh, thanks for being with us. And I guess let's start with those remarks uh, from uh, US Treasury Secretary uh, Janet uh, Yellen saying that maybe the uh, deregulation has gone too far. Mark, uh, what do you make of that? We have to probably take that with a bit of a pinch of salt because as early as the beginning of 2019, uh, regulators flagged that there were some concerns around the risk management practices of SVP. And that would have given President Trump um, insufficient time for those uh, deregulation measures to take full effect. So uh, the business model specifically had risks pertaining to it. And it's not just about the the size of the balance sheet and whether it falls under the systemically important definition, because there are a ton of other regional banks that also were not part of that net catch and have much more um, conservative business models that haven't fallen into hard times recently. So is this just a case of um, uh, Biden throwing back some of those uh, those Trump changes or are they actually doing something that's going to mean something, uh, do you think, Mark? It's a good question. I think longer term, the, the, the incumbent government, the incumbent administration of the day wants to make sure that the banking system runs smoothly. The last thing it wants heading into an important election are major economic and financial crises. So there will be a sort of whatever-it-takes approach in terms of ring-fencing any problematic banks and other non-bank financial uh, actors in the system going towards that election. Crisis, what crisis, Andrew? Uh, I think uh, your view on this is that maybe there isn't one. Uh, Yes, actually, when I hear about uh, we're going to tighten up regulation or regulation deregulation has gone long enough, it, it is absolutely blindingly unobvious of what has actually has happened. Hello, SVB had less than 10% of its deposits were insurable. In other words, 90% of the depositors knew very well that if there were losses, more than 250,000, they were dead. So I'm not quite sure why I should regulate people that decide to put their money in a bank that clearly, okay, uh, or they put a substantial amount of money in a bank, but clearly it's not going to be insured. So you know, there, are, there are a lot of things that actually banks do, and then we decide, well, you know, we should regulate them more or regulate them less. You know, I, um, I'm a little bit at loss. You know. <laughs> so we shouldn't give people a safety net, is that what you're saying, if they, if they uh, do silly things, Andrew? Well, yeah, exactly. If, if the system says that for deposits over 250,000, you're going to lose them, okay? And I'm a depositor and I stick in a bank half a million, well then, you know, the other 250,000 should be lost. I know it could be lost. You know, I'm not saying I I don't feel sorry or pity, but if I was to buy shares and I lose 80% of their value, as it did happen, for example, with Credit Suisse, well, that's what happens if you're buying shares. There's a very large potential loss. So why should I expect somebody to to bail me out with that? Somehow, you know, deposits are sacrosanct. Oh, you know, they are all poor ladies, uh, sort of widows and orphans, and they have a few thousand in the bank, and you cannot possibly deprive them of them. Yeah, yeah, okay, fair enough. 
and stick it down to about 100,000 US and you will cover all the widows and orphans you want. Sorry, James, I'm talking too much. <laughs> but I guess we want, I guess we do want stability, Andrew, don't we? I mean, you know, maybe, maybe calming things down is generally a good thing for the markets, isn't it? Well, you know, I like to know which is the we want stability. Okay, if in fact central banks, two central banks, okay, National Swiss and Fed actually say, don't worry, we'll take care of it. And worse than that, the authorities in Switzerland reversed the holy grail of risk assessment and risk uh, diversification. And that is, it makes the bonds take the first lots and the shareholders to take effectively, I wouldn't say none, but not take a loss. This is completely absurd. Mark, you know, it, it, mm. is, it is a crazy world. Okay, it is a completely, completely insane world. Yeah. Mark, is it a crazy world from your perspective? What, what sort of advice are you giving your clients? We're looking for opportunities that aren't necessarily what we would call beta exposure, so dependent on broader market direction. So we're looking for relative value opportunities, and there you do find potentially investable ideas. So whether it's um, looking at the different points on the curve in fixed income markets, whether it's looking at equity markets and saying certain countries are benefiting from some secular growth drivers at the moment. Just on that latter point, one observation with China's reopening post the pandemic is that you're seeing a real surge in outbound tourism and there's a lot of associated consumption activity with that. There are certain markets which are more directly benefiting from that agenda. So, for example, French equities because of a large index weight towards um, luxury goods companies. And so we're thinking sort of underneath the bonnet rather than placing too much risk allocation at index level positions. Uh, we've seen quite a lot of tourism come into, into Hong Kong on the streets at the moment. Uh, do you think it's going to have a positive impact uh, for Hong Kong? Certainly cyclically, yes. I mean, Hong Kong has been starved of inbound tourism for the last three to four years. And of course, historically, the biggest uh, constituent population driver of that inbound tourism is mainland tourists. There is a question mark, though, the the extent to which those tourists will spend to the same degree that they had pre-pandemic, or are they looking for more cultural experiences? And so that's still a bit of a question mark. I think one of the things in the past that uh, Hong Kong has driven is the high-end retail sector and attracting, you know, high rollers from the mainland. But the the tourists, the tourists that are coming through at the moment don't seem to be at that level at all. So I guess that may not make as much difference as we'd like it to make, would it? There seems to be a sense that a lot of the the wealthier outbound tourists are looking to go further afield. Um, but you've got a lot of uh, group tours um, coming to, to Hong Kong from the mainland, which you say on a per capita basis, the spending levels are lower. But, but, but ultimately, you've got to start somewhere. And, and, and the tourism industry domestically in Hong Kong really needs a boost. And, and, and this is a great start. Andrew, we've heard quite a lot <laughs> yeah, this hang week. Hang on a minute. Let me, let me just, hang on a minute. Sorry, James. Let me just chip in very briefly about tourism. Uh, two years, if I remember well, two years before the, the outbreak of COVID, that was... Uh, Year 19, we're talking about year 17, the peak of tourism in, in Hong Kong was 55 million, 55 million, I'll say that very slowly, mm, tourists, mm. 75% of which were Chinese. Okay, that works out to about four and a half million a month. We're not even anywhere near that. In other words, I would be delighted to see one million a month tourists, and we're not seeing that. And as we are rightly pointed out, Okay, these are not the kind of tourists we want. A guy that buys hamburgers and uh, eats sandwiches in the park. 
Okay, we want them to spend a lot of money. And therefore, Hong Kong may very well have to do a kind of reverse Las Vegas, whereby we have to diversify what we are attracting people for. And as you say, cultural tourism might be one of the solutions, although that's not a big money payer, I can tell you. I just want to touch on um, Alibaba and, uh, you know, what's going on on there. Alibaba CEO Daniel Chang says it may give up control of some of its businesses. And uh, Chanyao Network Technology, the logistics arm of Alibaba, getting ready for an IPO in Hong Kong. What do we think about this breakup of Alibaba? Mark, uh, what's, what's your feeling? I think from a bottom-up perspective, it's a catalyst for realising embedded value. The stock was trading at heavily discounted valuation multiples, a very complex structure. And by breaking up into smaller pieces, the market is better able to observe the, the effective value of all the constituent parts. So that's why you've seen an initial rally is that the market feels that the, that the combined equity value should improve over time, subject to financial performance, of course. Top down, I think this is an example of, of China's policymakers approaching the, uh, the e-commerce sector and the internet sector differently to the US um, uh, policymakers. So in the US, you've got huge groups such as Alphabet, Facebook and Apple and Amazon, and they've taken great, uh, almost monopolistic shares of their various verticals. China's looked at that and said, well, actually, we want to um, encourage competition. We don't want individual ecosystems to dominate uh, the new economy too much. And so breaking it up uh, creates the, the foundations for greater competition longer term. And China has a great example there because as a logistics provider, what it didn't want is for it to be completely captive to Alibaba's needs. It now uh, can create a platform which is much more open to other players in terms of serving their own logistics needs. Andrew, does this give uh, investors opportunities, would you say? Um, you know, I'm always rather concerned by the technology sector, whatever that means, because the technology sector contains companies that write software, contains, contains companies that make hardware, and contains companies that do a combination of both. In other words, bundle them all uh, under the same uh, bracket. Hey, this is very good for technology. I immediately I want to say, sorry, which one? And my touch, my my sort of uh, take on that is is a little bit tangential. For months now, I have been praising the defence sector, the defence sector virtually everywhere, significantly outperforming uh, S and P almost month in, month out, particularly, of course, after the outbreak of war in, uh, in, in Ukraine. Uh, I'm not saying it was performing well. I was simply saying it was outperforming the index. And, of course, defense companies are major consumers of software, of uh, te technology software and hardware. And I would like to see combinations of companies that are particularly uh, hardware technology oriented. And that is always a nice combination of both. It's good for the technology and it's good for the defense companies. Mind you, defense companies is a little bit of a no-no um, if one comes to, let's call, uh, ethical and, uh, let's say, moral issues. Andrew Ferris is uh, CEO of Ecognosis Advisory and our other guest, Mark Franklin, uh, Managing Director and Senior Portfolio Manager of Multi-Asset Solutions Manulife Investment Management. Thank you to both of you guys.